Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is exiting my interior. This is entering your interior. Thanks for being here. Thank you for allowing me uh, into your headspace. Is that gross, considering me uh, entering your interior? My name is Brad Listy. I'm the host of this program, and I'm sitting, as usual, in a chair in Los Angeles. My guest today is Matthew Spector. His latest novel, American Dream Machine, is out there now from Tin House. It has been causing a stir Readers have been responding positively. Uh, Hollywood is interested. Showtime has optioned the novel. They are uh, considering it as source material for a possible television series and whatnot. So uh, things are happening for Matthew Spector. Things are in motion, and uh, he is now at the epicenter of a perfect storm of his own creation. And I'm very pleased to get a chance to talk with him at this particular juncture in his ascendant career. Uh, what else? Well, uh, I went for a walk this morning, and uh, I looked at the sky. <laughs> Listen, I actually have a point here. Uh, here's the thing. Like so many people, I have a relatively boring, ritualized existence. 
Not much happens that would surprise you. Or for that matter, entertain you. Uh, In the morning, I wake up, I take my dog Walter out, we go for a walk, uh, I try to get some fresh air. And, uh, you know, I can worry sometimes that my life is not exciting enough. I can worry that I'm not being adventurous enough or uh, doing enough things. I feel like I need to do more things sometimes. And I can worry that there's no poetry in my existence, uh, which of course isn't true. There's poetry in everyone's existence, but, uh, you know, I'm an internet-addicted automaton sometimes. And so on. So, you know, it's not true. My life is not boring. Most, Or if it is, it's normal. Most human lives are like this. Are they not? You know, because even people who have these quote-unquote dynamic existences, the reality is the dynamic part still represents a minority of their time. Uh, you got to figure like 10% of the time they're being dynamic. They're being fancy. The rest of the time, they're just doing what everybody else does. They're online. They're shopping. They're looking for coffee. They're wandering around aimlessly. Uh, they're lost in their thoughts. Whatever it is that they do. So this has been on my mind. And, you know, I was thinking about it this morning as I was walking around. I was probably anticipating having to do uh, this monologue. And I became acutely aware of how boring I am. (laughs) Because, you know, I have these rituals. I see certain things every day, as we all do. Uh, I walk past a barber shop. The barber has a white ponytail. He chain smokes. I walk past a grocery store. And uh, there are often seagulls perched on the top of its uh, edifice. I walk past a pinkberry, which uh, for some reason is almost always filled entirely with women, many of whom are sitting alone, many of whom uh, appear sad. And, uh, you know, I see certain people every day, or almost every day, in my weird uh, neighborhood. A lot of homeless people in my neighborhood, unfortunately. A lot of mentally ill people. And these are people that I see every day. <laughs> these are my people, for real. I see them you know, almost every single day. And I have these small exchanges with them on a regular basis, and I never really document the experience. Even though it's my everyday experience. This is the fabric of my life. <laughs> Wasn't that a commercial? The fabric of your life or something? So anyhow, today I was crossing the street and uh, I saw this guy named, uh, Jamon. I think it's Jamon. I, you know, I had thought for a long time that it was Jamar, but as you're about to hear, uh, I received some clarification in uh, my exchange with him. He's very hard to understand, generally speaking, but, uh, he's easily my favorite, uh, street person for lack of a better term. And I hope that's not impolite. Uh, you know, I don't know what to call him. He lives in the street and, uh, he's the sweetest guy, a big chubby, sweet faced guy who sits at the bus stop every single day, all day long (laughs) and has uh, for years. He's out there. Some days he's got it together. He's coherent or semi-coherent other days. uh, Not so much, you know, not so much. Other days I see him and he's having like these very long winded, hostile, conversations with absolutely no one. And, uh, you know, I don't know what that is. Is that schizophrenia? I'm not a doctor, whatever you call it. 
So the point is, we, you know, we always say hello, or we, you know, almost always. He's a very friendly guy, extremely likable. And uh, he always asks me uh, for my email address, <laughs> which I think I might have mentioned on this program before. And, you know, I've given it to him on a couple of different occasions. But uh, as of yet, I have not received an email. So, uh, you know, just so you guys can get an idea of my mundane daily existence, uh, I, I decided to record my conversation with Jamon this morning. Just, you know, for my personal records and also so you guys can have an idea of what happens to me in my daily life. So I did this street recording with my telephone. Uh, the audio quality, you know, it's a little bit subpar. And then couple that with the fact that Jamon is extremely difficult to understand. And, uh, you know, it becomes uh, a little bit challenging. But... Uh, nevertheless, I, I feel compelled to share this with you. So here it is. This is me uh, walking the streets of Los Angeles in my neighborhood, uh, having a conversation with my friend, Jamon. Hey, man. Hey, How you doing? I'm, I worked on that. I'm, I'm... Okay, so you're going to see that you can see that it's going to be a little bit difficult to understand him. He's a bit of a mumbler. And uh, I also uh, feel compelled to, to let you know that... Um, you know, I do bring him donuts. I offer him beverages when it's very hot out. I don't want you guys to think that I'm a complete monster. You know, it's just, it's overwhelming. There are dozens of uh, homeless people in my neighborhood. I, you, what do you do? I do the best I can. Okay. You like how I'm saying, uh, okay, like I, like I understand what he's saying. <laughs> Good. I sent you an email. Let's see. Do I get your number? You do, yeah. Okay. It's through your email. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know my number that everyone like yeah, yeah. jump on. That's the Wi-Fi. So you good. All right. That's the that's the the Wi-Fi. I think I heard him just say he's on the Wi-Fi and he's emailing, or he wants to email me on the Wi-Fi. I think that's what he said. Okay. So, well, look, I know you had contact. Just, just stay bummed. All right, buddy. Yeah, I gotta back on that top right. I might be on that. Your name's Jamar, right? Jamar. Jamon? Yeah. All right, man. Okay, so there's the clarification. I feel like an asshole. Like, I really did think it was Jamar all this time, but, uh, you know, he's hard to understand. It's Jamon. Do you guys, are you guys enjoying this? No, damn, bro. All right, good to see you. No, good. Stay on it. Stay on it. Yeah, you stay on it. Okay. No, that, that's the right side. I'm saying, I got to do that to uh, Friday anyway. So anytime we have it, we even try to be kids. So, yeah, that's something. Deep. This is what I do on a daily basis, you guys. <laughs> this is my daily uh, existence right here in all of its glory. And I didn't know cars. You know, they have a white kids, too. A little wrong. All right, I think he just said uh, Lou Rawls. Did you hear that? I think he just made a Lou Rawls reference. You already talked to Dwayne, so I got both. Nice. All right, sounds good. No problem. Have a nice day. You too, All right. Okay, so there's the uh, Dwayne reference, which I get pretty much every day. He's always telling me that Dwayne needs to talk to me. Uh, he's always pointing down the street when he says this, and when I look you know, down the street, there's nobody there. <laughs> so that's Jamon. Uh, bless him. That's my buddy. That's who I see every day when I walk around this uh, city in my neighborhood. And uh, I figured I would let you know that. Uh, before we get going, I did get a voicemail from a listener that I figured I would share. Here it is. Hi. Uh, yeah, just um, 
Oh, I always talk too loud. I've done this before. Uh, listen, don't get self-conscious on my show. That's my job. <laughs> don't rain on my parade. Sorry, I sound like I'm schizophrenic. I'm not schizophrenic. I just listened to Michael J. It's, it's schizophrenia like a theme. I think I think uh, schizophrenia is the theme of today's monologue. I just listened to Michael J. Seidlinger's uh, yeah, interview. And I just want to say that it was really nice to hear an author talking about process and you talking with him about process because usually it's just about other things which are also nice but well, listen uh, you know i'm uh, i'm happy to talk about whatever with uh, my guests that's sort of the mo uh, whatever comes up it's a spontaneous situation it's a conversation and uh, i try to steer some of it in the direction of uh, the actual writing but i got to be honest with you if I had, uh, you know, I've done what, 250 of these almost. If I, uh, if I had to have a, a convert, like a, you know, a twice weekly hour long conversation about the writing process, uh, I, I would not be doing this show. <laughs> I might not even be alive. It's just, I can't do that. I don't think you're expecting me to do that, but uh, you know, who wants to listen to that? Do people want to listen to that? Am I misjudging my audience? Yeah, he was really clear on how he goes about things. And I could tell, Brad, that you'd been perhaps struggling with... I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. <laughs> how to go about compiling this novel thing. Okay, yeah. I do actually know what he's talking about. And I should also say, at a, uh, as a matter of clarification, that he is referencing episode 246, my conversation with Michael J. Seidlinger, where we got into the uh, nitty gritty of uh, composition and uh, the writing process. And I have been too. And it's been tough because I've got this massive shitty first draft and I got the story in my head and I think I'll just rewrite it all again, which doesn't bother me at all. I don't believe that. It bothers me. I don't want to rewrite anything. Uh, I like the process. You probably don't care. Blah, blah, blah. It was nice to hear about process. And I think I'm going to adopt it. Um, before I have kids, I can get in my 2,000 words. I'm writing that anyway. So anyway, uh, one writer out there listening to you, uh, it was nice to hear you guys dork out on that for a while. So thank you. Okay, so thanks to whoever you are. Uh, you left your message anonymously, so I don't know your name. I don't think I know your name. Uh, but whoever you are, I appreciate it. Thanks for sending word. And, uh, you know, I liked it too. I liked talking with uh, Michael Seidlinger. Everything that happened in that conversation happened uh, without planning. That's the way it goes on this show. Uh, Michael happens to be, uh, he had a lot of energy. He was, uh, he was game for whatever. We hit it off. There was mental synergy. And, uh, you know, uh, the writing process came up. And I think, you know, Michael's able to talk about the way that he works with a lot of clarity. He's got a very uh, structured approach, and he's got a lot of discipline, and he's got a lot of, uh, you know, ideas about how to work and why it works that way for him and everything else. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully it's helpful. It was helpful for me. And, uh, if you want to, uh, if anybody out there wants to leave me a voicemail, the, uh, the way that you do that is over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. You go there, you click on send voicemail over at the right side of the page. You can also email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Matthew Spector. His novel is called American Dream Machine. It's available now from Tin House. Uh, Really great to have him over and to get a chance to talk with him. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation, and uh, let's get to it. Here he is, folks. This is Matthew Spector, and his book, once again, is called American Dream Machine machine. My dad wasn't a very successful agent. I mean, he was, he was fine, but he, he really was kind of a very modestly successful agent. Um, until, until, you know, well into my adulthood. So, which is just to sort of say that the, the Hollywood that I was watching was not really the Hollywood of, um, you know, of, of massive stars. Like that was sort of, you know, maybe on the other side of the room. Yeah. But the people that were around tended to be, you know, character actors, working directors. Um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson that was like popping around for dinner. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask. It was, uh, you know, like Bruce Dern or, or, uh, Stacey Keach, you know, like people, you know, Warren Oates, like these people who were really cool. Sure. But they weren't like, you know, when, when I'd go to school and, you know, my, you know, elementary school buddies would be talking about the movies. It wasn't really those people, you know, Marty Feldman, right? Right. You know, that was great. Right. The Mel Brooks movies. But, uh, but, um, you know, so, so there was a sense, I think of, 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 you know, watching, you know, not so much a Hollywood that was a, uh, particularly glamorous, but a Hollywood that was sort of, you know, more or less middle-class or, or the, the middle, Hollywood. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing about it too, is that there's a lot of people in this town that make a living, but they don't make like this spectacular living. Yeah. Although I would, I would argue, you know, f- fewer of those people. I mean, I think, you know, in Hollywood as in every other aspect of, you know, culture and life, the, the, you know, the sort of squeezing of, of the middle class, you know, there, there seem to be in Hollywood now very, um, you know, people, people who are making a killing and people who are sort of really scraping by and there's not a lot. Yeah, it's feast or famine. Two. Right. Well, and you know, I mean, I, we can talk uh, We can talk for hours on the way that the uh, entertainment industry has changed uh, over the years. I'm sure you could speak to it much better than I could. But, um, you know, when I stop and think about it, uh, you know, as a, a writer and as somebody who's had like, 
at least some uh, desire to get involved uh, from a writerly perspective in Hollywood. Sure. You're like, who, who's making these decisions? <laughs> and, it, and, and who's who's able to actually get something done in right. this town? And it's re- I, you just get the sense that it's not that many people. <laughs> no, it, it's not. But I mean, but... Well, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I, I assume in other walks of media, it's it's much the same, you know? I mean, I, I feel like the culture of publishing and the culture of, you know, studio filmmaking seem, you know, eerily similar. You think they're becoming... Because, I mean, I, I feel like publishing is always... I mean, like, from a temperament standpoint, publishing has seemed to me a little bit more of a gentleman's and gentlewoman's business, just in terms of the interactions, whereas... Hollywood can be a little bit colder, or maybe that's yeah. just me looking through the prism of my own experience. Well, it may be that with more money at, on the table, you know, with, with larger sums at stake, people tend to be a little bit more brutal in yeah. their in their pursuits. Right. Um, but it's it's hard to say. I mean, as as much as I grew up, you know, in the in the you know um, heart of the entertainment business, that wasn't you know that wasn't where my interest. Lay. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was, you know, kind of meticulously observing it or storing it up. It was really something that I thought, God, I don't want, I don't, you know, when I was a kid and when I was a teenager and when I was a younger man, I always felt like I don't want any part of that. Why? Um, I think partly, uh, it's a good question. And one that kind of has a, a compound answer, you know, part, part of it is that, um, that I, I felt that, uh, it was at odds with wanting to be a writer. Um, you know, I, I, for somebody who was nursing literary. Yeah. Writing. If, if one really wanted to be a serious writer, if one wanted to write literature, uh, one, one really couldn't or shouldn't do it from Los Angeles, or if one was doing it in Los Angeles. And really when I was a kid, that would have been uh, Joan Didion. <laughs> yeah. Not very many people, um, you know, Eve Babbitts maybe, but you would then kind of automatically have to be doing it from, uh, from the perspective of a, an outsider or, you know, a sharply, you know, kind of, um, a, a position of extreme disaffection. Right. Um, which seemed to me, you know, I mean, and, and part of what led me around to writing American dream machine was the consideration that, you know, writers from other cities didn't have to do that. You right. Know, if, if, if you're writing about Chicago or Philadelphia or Newark or St. Louis or, you know, whatever your, your city is, um, you're not expected to treat it as, you know, uh, as, as, you know, something that needs to be eviscerated <laughs> or scorned. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and I also realized that there were a lot of things about this place that I love. I just love to pieces. So, you know, that was, that was the impetus behind that book. But I, I still think in many ways that, that it's an outmoded, uh, conception that we have of, of Los Angeles, you know, that it's, and that it's a strange expectation. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's it doesn't not- exist for other cities. I mean, at least, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm from the Midwest and I remember wanting to get out of Dodge and uh-huh. like be, you know, my, which my which suburb the- was so fake. I mean, in, in Indiana, uh-huh. right. <laughs> which is about as big of a, you know, big of a leap from Los Angeles culturally as you could have almost. You sure. Indiana sort of the Utah of the Midwest, <laughs> but, um, you know, so, but I remember being like, this place is so, you know, it's so fake and I need, you know, the, kind of the same things people would say about Los Angeles in a right. way. And, I think that's a natural adolescent response, uh-huh. you know, to sort of have uh, a desire to stake out your own territory and to get some independence and some distance. Was that the sort of, um, you know, the, the perceived falsity of the suburbs? You know, I mean, because there's certainly an, an American literary tradition that 
that involves that. Well, right, know? right. I and mean, that's, that's Cheever. That's, you know, Richard Yates. That's, uh, that's, you know, any number of writers have, you know, have sort of written to expose the, you know, the, the sort of falseness of, of the American suburb. Well, right. I mean, which that's is a thing. similar expectation. It actually. is. I was going to yeah. say, it's just a matter of scale. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's yeah. like scale. And then also, you know, you have the, the, the place that it occupies and the place that Los Angeles occupies in the popular imagination is much grander. Right. You know, I mean, I think every, a lot of people have a frame of reference for the suburbs, but, um, I don't know. I think because Los Angeles appears in all these movies and television shows, because Los Angeles is piped into people's you know homes every night on television and on their computer screens, um, you know everybody sort of feels a ownership of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a right to criticize that they might not feel for um, other cities because it's not in their face every, all the time. Yeah, that may be. I suppose. I mean, although I think in some ways it even presupposes representations of Los Angeles. I think there's a. I think there's an ingrained suspicion of it. Um, and I've wondered about it before, you know, I don't know whether that's a kind of like, you know, kind of ingrained, uh, American Puritanism. That's like not comfortable with, um, you know, that whole sort of like West coast hedonism thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Something, I mean, that you and I are living so, you know, so, so plainly. Well, I mean, that's uh, the thing yeah. though, because I, and I can speak to that because growing up in the Midwest, it was like, you know, it was often said, and I can't remember specifics, but I mean, I'm sure my parents said it. I'm sure other adults in my orbit said it, teachers and whatnot, you know, uh, intimating that, they, you know, Los Angeles is crazy. Right. It's crazy. Right. It's a terrible city. It's a bad place. There's bad things happening out there. People are shallow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then I wound up out here and I actually really like it. Yeah. And I've talked on the show before about this very thing where it's like you get sort of sick of defending it. Mm-hmm. Or defending the the fact that you like it, and it's like you know, there's a reason why there's a lot of people here. Yeah, it's not an awful place, and a lot of culture, a lot of writers, a lot you know, a lot, sure. a lot of culture, a lot of painters, you know, a lot of a lot of visual artists, a lot of um, you know, a lot of things here besides the movie business, which isn't that bad to begin with. Right. And in, indeed, now you know, given given the the you know the prominence of television in you know not just American culture but American intellectual culture, right? Um, which is, know. I mean, and uh, you know, you sort of hate to say it as a bookish person, but I feel like long, for, you know, television, um, uh, you know, from a long form narrative perspective is occupying some of the same territory that novels seek to occupy or novels used to occupy around the water cooler or whatever. For sure. You yeah. Know, where people are really investing themselves in these um, extended. Right. Stories. Right. And, you know, I do it. <laughs> yeah. No, we <laughs> you know, all do. It's great. Absolutely. Television right now is exciting. Yeah. But I also think in a lot of ways, you know, they're all just, I mean, you know, forms or modes that have, um, I don't want to say expiration dates, but, you know, a, f- a form really, really kind of exist on the leading edge for only so long, you know? And I think in a lot of ways, like whether it's, you know, novels, poems, or, you know, you can, you can look at it like in terms of musical idioms, you know, jazz or, or, you know, country and Western, you know, certain types of, of, of of forms that are, um, you know, they're a changeable, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the novel, you know, has, has been many different things at many times and, you know, and B, you know, finally superseded or at the very least, um, you know, joined, shall we say crowded, crowded into a different position by other forms. Right. And that's just natural. You yeah. know, I feel like, yeah, right. Well, the feature film was, you know, the sort of late 20th century and, you know, now we're having a sort of moment about, you know, serial, you know, serial drama on television. And, you know, God knows that this little window isn't going to last 
forever. Well, I, I mean, I was reading, so many people have commented about, you know, on this and I, I tend to read whatever comes across my computer screen, you know, about this uh, sort of thing. And there was some extended essay written by somebody. And I, I always do this whenever I talk about long form stuff that I've read on the internet or commentaries that I've read on the internet. I can never remember who wrote it or what site it was on. Right. Um, but it was somewhere on the internet and I read some guy <laughs> saying that like this moment is already over. We, right. We've reached critical mass. It's oversaturated. There's too much TV. Mm-hmm. You can't keep up with it. Like, what's more normal these days than having a DVR that's loaded with like entire seasons of a show you intend to watch, to watch but may never get to? Which I guess you know happens to people's bookshelves too. You know, sure, sure, um, all the time. I mean, you know, the the um, you know the thing itself. What, what was the quote? By the time the, the, this moment is already over, or something like uh, that. Well, yeah. yeah, but broadly speaking, that's that's true anyway. I mean, you know, by the time we're by the time people are talking about something, the the moment. It's generally passed. is over. Yeah. yeah. It's passed. So, um, what do you, I mean, uh, do you feel qualified or <laughs> are you, are you, um, able to assess the current state of, uh, you know, the Hollywood entertainment complex? But do you know what I'm saying? Like you wrote a whole, you wrote this whole novel about, um, uh, that deals with its history and sure. You know, and, you- and deals with, you know, a certain transformative, you know, uh, shift a certain certain thing that's happened in american culture in the last 30 40 years but uh do i feel <laughs> do i feel qualified to assess it not really well i mean i, I guess I mean, i'm asking you to yeah like, yeah yeah like what do yeah. you how do you see, <laughs> i can do it anyway then. yeah let's that just do it anyway me. because but, how do you i mean how do you feel obviously mm-hmm. televisions there's some excitement there mm-hmm. um when it comes to the making of feature films it's yeah. we're sort of at a moment where you, you can just kind of make one yeah and people do and people do which is really interesting and i mean that is interesting you know and it's interesting that you know, people, I mean, there's, it's actually, there are two movies, two features this year that I'm, you know, involved with as a, as a producer. And one is, uh, uh, Stephen Elliott's, uh, adaptation of his novel, Happy Baby. Sure. Yeah. Which, you know, he kickstarted the budget for and Well, yeah, know, no, and I, the, I threw, I think I threw a few dollars into the, into right, the production. Right. Pot. Yes. Yeah, me too. And, and, and another is, is, a, is, a well, it hasn't, we haven't calendared yet, but you know, James Franco is adapting Steve Erickson's novel, Zero, Zeroville. And, you know, but similarly, he's not working, you know, we're not doing it in a, in a studio context. Right. Um, it's being done, you know, with independent financing and, and it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, even people who are, who are inside the game, uh, are opting to make features that way. Well, you can, yeah, cause you can do it without somebody picking at you. Yeah. And, theoretically, and, and you know, my, I guess, I guess my sense is, is that studios as we know and understand them really aren't in the business of making, of making movies anymore they're in the business of making franchises right making um basically making merchandising opportunities yeah well and you know and and even i would argue that that even the kinds of you know every every november december they start you know oh well they were they remember oh yeah well you know we're supposed to make films so we'll do an American hustle and a 12 years of slave. I was going to say there is yeah. like the, the, the season for like the serious films and a few of them get through the hoops. Sure. Sure. And but even, but even those feel oddly like, like, you know, like pieces of a franchise. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard for me to look at a, you know, a, a Wes Anderson movie and not see it as a, as a sequel to all the other Wes Anderson movies, even if it isn't in a literal sense, you know, the, the, from a, from a marketing perspective and from a sort of, from a, a, cultural positioning perspective, you know, a Coen brothers movie, right? Right. Every year there's a Coen brothers movie. And, you know, even though obviously the Coens are, you know, wonderful filmmakers, there's a, there's a real kind of, um, 
a predictability to it for me. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's, there's certainly, uh, well, they have their, I mean, like I think of Wes Anderson, especially he's got a really distinct visual aesthetic right. that he hasn't really strayed from. Right. Um, it's always sort of there, you right. know, with the, maybe the exception of the fantastic Mr. Fox, but even there, right. It still felt kind of Wes Anderson, you know, Yeah, quite. And it's great, but it's like also, you know, um, I mean, I guess maybe what the question is, is that like, if you are like a filmmaker of, uh, serious intentions, right. You still have to have like a discernible brand. Sure. You know, and, and if you become too erratic in terms of the kinds of films that you're making and they can't easily package it up and, you know, uh, put it out there, maybe that right hurt, diminishes your chances of getting films made. I'm sure it does. I mean, it does within the context of the, of the studio system. It does. Okay, so here's a question for you. Like, yeah. if, if it's now easier than ever to make a, a feature film, you know, mm-hmm. the camera technology is, a, you know, enabling people to go out and make right. movies for almost nothing, right. relatively speaking, that look really great. Sure. Um, what about distribution? Well, that's... How, like, right. how, how critical do you think theatrical distribution still is? Um, somewhat critical. I mean, it, it helps, obviously. I mean, but but again, you know, the windows for that are incredibly narrow. I mean, you know, I think a lot of movies and a lot of, you know, a lot of movies get a very, a very slender theatrical release. And, you know, but, but I feel again, this is, you know, this is a thing for, this is the, the distribution question, the distribution question and the sort of market share question. It's the same. I mean, it's the same problem with books. Well, I was going to say yeah. where I feel like, you know, on the one hand, you know, given that, you know, the, the big six or big five, big three, big two. How many of them are left? I think it's big five. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Random House and, and Penguin right. merge, and, and right. it's it's called Random House Penguin or Penguin Random yeah, House. Yeah, yeah. It should be called yeah. Random Penguin. Random Random Penguin House yeah. would be so much better, but they you know they made that mistake. But I think you know they're not really in the they're not really in the business of of um, they're certainly not in the business of publishing literature. I mean, in my you know that's I, if, if they if they to what extent they still are, and yeah, I'm not. Certainly not saying that, you know, that they don't publish any literature. Right. But I would say, you know, that's not their primary business. It can't possibly be. No, not with, I mean, not with like Bertelsmann and, right. you know, these giant corporate conglomerates right. or whatever happening. Like, it's all about the bottom line and it's sure. all about, that's it. So then, of course, you know, the response to that, which, you know, seems to have really kind of, you know, taken a very, a much more definitive shape in the last, you know, eight or 10 years of, is, or even in the last five or six is, you know, a very, um, you know, an, a strong explosion in independent publishing where there are, you know, all these, you know, really, really, you know, interesting houses doing, you know, that have a real editorial identity right? and um, that are sensibility driven, you know, whether that's, you know, Melville House or, or Tin House or $2 Radio or, you know, Red Lemonade or, or Coffee House Press, like in Grey Wolf, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. It's and a gold, I mean, you know, you know, speaking of golden ages right. and whatnot, like it feels like w- with respect to independent publishing. Right. Right. And it's interesting to me because I look at, um, you know, those, those imprints all mean something to me. Like if I see, Oh, you know, $2 radio did this book or Tin House did this book. I, it excites me. And Tin know. House, we should mention published. Is, yeah. Yeah. But right. you know, but but, it's interesting, mm-hmm. uh, that Tin House published American Dream Machine because I look at it and I think to myself, my God, this is, this is this epic story about Hollywood it should have, it should have appeal to the big five. Mm-hmm. The big well, six. it was, you know, I, I won't, I won't tell those stories in detail, but you know, there were, there were numerous conversations with people at different houses and, uh, you know, with very smart editors and interesting people who, you know, seem quite 
sincere in either their their interest or their outright desire to buy the book, and there were various reasons why they couldn't or didn't, um, that always felt a little square peg round hole to me. Like I always felt like I'd wind up in these kind of dialogues and I'd think, are we even talking about the book or, or is this some other, this is like a, this is like a sales and marketing meeting. Yeah, exactly. And which is by the way, not, I mean, I don't find that objectionable in the context of doing, you know, that that's, that's not the business that they're, I mean, that's, that is the business that they're in. Right. Which just happens to not at all be the business that any writer should be in. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's interesting because I have friends in town who work in entertainment, uh, and I, I don't know, for whatever reason, they work in marketing, a lot of them. Uh-huh. Um, that just happens to be like one of the circles I swim in. And it's always interesting to hear them talking about relationships with creatives and yeah. just to hear about, there's always an inherent tension. Yeah. Always. Always. It's like, yeah. oh, the director's being an asshole. Oh, the writer's <laughs> impossible. Oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like you talk to, and, I, and you know what, if you talk to the writers, it's like, oh, the sales and marketing people or, you right. know, they don't get it. You know, the, right. it, it's just built in. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And I mean, you know, I, I will say, uh, you know, in, I've had, I had kind of had a real spectrum of those experiences with American Dream Machine because the, the book was published in, in England by Little Brown. Um, so, you know, I, I had the experience abroad of, you know, the, the sort of the big machine and the publicity people. Yeah. And then, you know, at, at Tin House too, obviously there were sales and marketing people involved and there were, you know, and I, I wound up sort of getting to know some of the, some of the sales reps who, you know, handled there and, you know, did get a sense in, in every single one of those, uh, instances of, of people who were having this very passionate personal response to the book. And, you know, and, and it wasn't real reminder that books, you know, books aren't movies, you know, first of all, they, 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 they sort of take longer for obvious reasons to digest, you know, people have to, people have to read them. Yeah. Uh, and particularly when you write a long novel, it takes, it takes longer. I mean, you know, there's a, there's, you know, American dream machine was published nine months ago now. And I feel like even now I'm only just still really kind of feeling the, the effect of it on people. Well, it takes, it takes a while for people to get to the book and right. to, for, I mean, it's, you know, for, to hear back from readers, to get reviewed, right. Um, for a book to work its way right through a friend group to get passed around. Everybody takes their, t- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and frankly, see. that's a pleasure. I mean, you know, if only because it takes long enough to write a novel, you know, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be like a, like a sparkler, you know, something that you wave around in the air for 90 <laughs> seconds and then you're left holding a little crispy stick. Um, it's a nice know. metaphor. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? Um, it took me, <clears throat> well, it's a good question because on the one hand, the, the actual, the first draft of it, on which I did, you know, a lot, I obviously spent a lot of time revising it, but there's a way in which it really is a book that kind of came out more or less the way that it is in the end. I mean, for all the kind of brush work that I did on it, yeah, you know, it, it, it shot out of you. It shot out of me in a, in a, in a way that was, you know, really exciting. And I, I, it, it's the, it's the experience every novelist dreams yes, of having. Right. And it that, that lasted, it took me about four, little over four months. And how long was the draft? 780 pages or something like that. Jesus Christ. It was crazy. It was just Were you using drugs? No. Nothing. (laughs) But no, but I was, I was, 
you know, writing, you know, 10 or 11 hours a day and, and, you know, without ever seeming to experience any kind of hesitation about what was going to come next. Okay. So was that, that length of time spent Uh writing Uh has to be unusual for you. It it is. Although I would, I mean, I would also, you know, I can, it's, that's a nice story that I can tell myself. And it's also a nice experience to have had, like that is, that was the experience I had. Of course, you know, the, the, you know, that's not taking into account the, I don't know, you know, the, the year and a half I spent writing, you know, 380 pages of a different novel that I wound up scrapping, you know, that never really felt like it had that kind of momentum. Right. You know, I, I feel like you can never, um, you know, it's very hard to measure the amount of time it takes to write anything. You know, well, I, I feel like anything that I write, if it usually, if it comes out well, it's been written fairly quickly, Yeah. but it's also usually been preceded by a goodly amount of hesitation, false start, trial and error. Right. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like you say, yeah. this thing shut out of me in four and a half months, but it took 11 years to get to that four and a half months or whatever it was. There was a wonderful the, a metaphor that I liked that described this. Somebody asked, I think it was the novelist Carolyn Shute, right? The woman who wrote Beans of Egypt, Maine, which I've never, never read. But they were asking her about you know how long it took her to write a book or something. And she said, you know, well, 13 years or seven years, whatever it was. And they said, well, that's a long time. And she said, well, not really. You know, it's it's like it's like hunting a deer. Like you just go out there and you just squat in the cold for, you know, several hours. And then, you know, you look up, you're like, Oh, there's a deer bang. Like, yeah. um, which by the way, sounds yeah. like a horrible hobby. It does, <laughs> does sound like, a horrible I just got to say just the, the, you know, being cold and in a deer stand, I don't get it. But, but I, but I think I, I have a suspicion that that experience is fairly standard. I mean, I, I, uh, I always think about, um, you know, Franzen, for example, Jonathan Franzen, who takes a long time, you know, between books, but I've or sort Donna of, Tart, I've sort of, famous for right. That. Well, well, I, I suspect with Donna Tart that, that it probably is more like, I think she probably works very slowly. Um, but I've heard Franzen talk some, and of course I'm going to be completely unable to source this too well, but I have heard him. It was know, on the internet somewhere, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I seem to recall him talking about freedom as, you know, a book where he hit you know, spent a few years after the correction sort of trying to write something and then realizing like, Oh, I need to do it this way. And then the actual writing of the book, you know, probably took less time. Yeah. Um, well, but I mean, it's like sometimes you got to figure out how to get out of your own way. Right. And it sounds like that's what happened with American dream machine. Like you had been kind of, and I think sometimes too, and, and maybe this was the case with you. Um, there's an element of avoidance. Like we try to avoid the thing that we actually want to say, or we're too scared of what people might think if we actually just talked about what is on our, really on our mind. And it seems so elemental, right? You know, as a grown man, I sometimes say to myself, why can't I just admit, like, let me just cop to this and try to write what I'm actually thinking about all the time. Right. But it's hard for some reason. Well, it's always hard. And if it wasn't hard, it wouldn't, it wouldn't come out with any, with any, you know, vitality or, or force or necessity. I mean, I, I, I think, um, which is just, I guess, a way of saying, you know, I hope it will always be hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right? if, it, if it, yeah, I know. mean, in the absence of resistance, there won't, there won't, there just won't be anything, anything there. Well, I was reading, uh, you had a conversation with Brett Easton Ellis and he was saying that he thinks all, I think he said something to the effect of all great, uh, books are born out of pain. Yeah. Well, that, that Brett probably said that. And I think that's, you know, I think that's true. I mean, I think yeah. it, I think that pain is, um, you know, infinitely legible in Brett's novels. I, I hadn't read him in quite a while, you know, aside from his his Twitter feed, which we were discussing. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't read which has him. its own brand of pain. I, I mean. it, it, it absolutely does. Yeah, unquestionably it does. But you know, I went back this this past summer 
uh, and I read reread uh, American Psycho, which I think is you know really a, a remarkable book. Yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think it's just amazing. I and, feel like that one's going to be the one that will be read for the longest. I don't know. It's, it's silly it's hard, to speculate, it, it, but yeah, you know it's, what it's I'm hard like, to say because I think I think Glamorama is also a strong book, and I think Lunar Park is a is a strong book. I love The Informers too. Yeah, you know, I that's I haven't gone back to that one. Yeah, but, you know. I felt like I mean, and I. I I felt like it was really strong when I read it. It's been years. And then I want to say I read something like an interview with Brett where he said that book came out of him easily Mm -hmm. in ways that maybe his other books didn't quite. And I Uh think it was kind of the thing that he would turn to when the other books weren't, were resisting him. Yeah. Uh, But whatever, you know, uh, his work's very interesting, especially in the context of Los Angeles. Well, and also I think, you know, when you say in the context of Los Angeles, I think, I think, and I think this is a problem that, you know, that writers have, which is, you know, it's a p- successful writers have, which is that people, people, they publish a certain number of books and then people kind of, in, they internalize an idea about the writer right. that is sort of de- developed and distilled out of the books. Well, and then and I, should, become, I should give him credit too, because his books aren't all in LA. I mean, American Psycho is a New York book. Yeah, not at all. Glamorama. I mean, not at all. That's, that's part of the, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that the idea is always false and, you know, and, and this is true within the canon too. It's like, you know, it's, it's. It's sort of the way that um, when people talk about Kafka uh, and they describe something as being Kafka-esque or whatever, you know, <laughs> that Kafka has come to signify something that is almost, you know, diametrically opposed to what the actual experience of reading Franz Kafka is like. Yeah. You know? It's it, making it, me think of, you know, and here's like... Uh, kind of a funny leap in logic, but it's making me think of the movie, the squid and the whale. Yeah. Right. Where the kid is like, it's Kafka esque. Right, 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 right. <laughs> sure. Sure. But I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a problem that writers, uh, ultimately, I mean, you know, that, that successful and fortunate writers have to face, which is that people start to, you know, it's, it's almost as if people start assuming that they've read things that they haven't. Yeah. You know, where you, you know, they, you sort of go, oh yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, well, you know, Brady Snellis, I know American Psycho, Lesson Zero. And then people have to like, people can talk very knowledgeably about those things without, without even having read them. Well, and that's the thing is like, yeah. I, books don't lend themselves to that kind of cultural shorthand in the way that maybe television shows or movies do. Right. Because, you know, because just like what you were saying earlier, it takes a long time to write them. It takes a long time to read them. Right. It, it takes a long time to process them once right. you have read them. And so, like, these kinds of quick, um, you know, like, snapshot perceptions, right. you know, and assessments, just, they just don't jive, especially right. if you've, especially if you're intimately familiar with the work or if you've written it. <laughs> right, right. But it, it is a unique problem for, for, for writers because books, of course, have to be, I mean, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort to, to read someone. Yeah. And, you know, part of that effort, no matter what you're reading, it takes a lot of effort to, to kind of dispel whatever your, your assumptions about that book are, you know, and we make them all the time. Right. I mean, it's, and you know, not, nothing gets picked up clean, you know, you, and it's, it's one of the things that, you know, I'm, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that I became aware of, you know, like American dream machine goes into the world and people go, Oh yeah, it's a Hollywood novel. And I sort of thought, well, the, actually the whole point of the book was to like write a book that's set here. That's not a Hollywood novel. But people need an but, easy, but it's just yeah. like in the movies where it's like, oh, it's, it's taxi driver plus, uh, 
you know, right. like uh, right. whatever, Midnight Cowboy. And right. you're like, oh, what the hell is that? But Marketeers people, are algebra, right? But people yeah. need... Oh, and, and you know what? It's mm-hmm. easy to kind of like look at that with scorn and be like, oh my God, that's a gross oversimplification. But like, I do it. Sure. Because you're trying to find a way to make it make sense for somebody. And yeah, you know. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I mean, that, that is also something that I think about that with blurbs all the time. You know, it's like when, you know, when I, when I was a, in the, in the nineties, I worked for 20th Century Fox for a while and I became very used to the idea that, you know, people would, I'd talk to different producers or, you know, at, I was at Fox, I was at Universal before that. And people would always sort of, I'd say to, you know, such and such, you know, Meg Ryan's producing partner, I'd say, so what are you guys looking to do? And they'd always say, well, you know, we're not just looking for things for so-and-so to star in. Like, we'd really like to make like a, like a really intelligent, like psychological horror movie, like Rosemary's Baby. That was a big thing. Everybody would say, we want to make an intelligent psychological horror movie like Rosemary's <laughs> Baby. And I would always think to myself, you know, they would then go off and make, you know, they'd get, get involved with some, you know, fourth rate scream knockoff or something. And I would think, my God, this, they, you know, they, they, they're mistaking the, the, the point of comparison for the thing. It's, it's as if, you know, well, just because you're making a horror movie that you have pitched as being like Rosemary's baby doesn't actually make it Rosemary's baby. Right. And, you know, that I find that's an interesting problem, you know, even, even, you know, I mean, cause you know, every good writer gets, and every and plenty of bad writers get you know subjected to you know you pick up their book and you look at the description and it's sort of like well it's why it's you know Faulkner it's <laughs> Johnson it's well forget about books I just I just I remember, I remember that from uh, like my MFA program like every workshop you know like inevitably there'd be somebody who'd be like this just reminds me of Fitzgerald and you know yeah I get that like there are echoes of it in people's work because sure. they're you know reading Fitzgerald but like it just it it can be really overdone, especially when the piece in question is like a first draft. <laughs> right, 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 right. It just it starts to seem silly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with regard to your stint in the film industry, working, you know, in the belly of the beast on, you know, on some level, uh, I guess as a producer, mm-hmm. um, but also wanting to be literary. Right. Still, that never left you. Well, Did- you know, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I mean, being by wanting to be by wanting to be liter- literary, you mean you know being interested in writing well, yeah. uh, prose fiction that you know where the, the language is used with extreme care and interest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. But I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, you because you took that work, yeah, and that was your day job, right? Um, was writing literature still your primary ambition? Always. Always. always was always yeah you never like to said you know what fuck it i'm gonna just no do, always no. always and and on you know and and on some level it always it always will be i mean you know i i i think that uh you know i've, I've done a lot of things in hollywood you know written features now i'm writing for tv um you know pretty I've, I've been a studio executive i've been a you know a producer and and i um you know, writers need day jobs. That's a, that's, they will, and unfortunately, you know, writers will probably always need them. Um, the damn most, shame. most writers will need them. And, uh, you know, and, it, and it's not really a shame, but I just think it's, I mean, because I think it's, I think when writers can get into trouble when they don't have them, Yeah, I mean, get into trouble with it, with the work. Um, but you know, I think, I think, um, I mean, I, I guess I've always thought of it as, you know, a, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good day job to have as they go, right? It's better than, you know, I don't know. Bale and Hay. Yeah, Bale and Hay or, you know, working at a morgue or, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> the, the working at a morgue, working at a morgue could be good for fiction. You shockingly know? like, well, I, I I was actually thinking about, um, 
I'm thinking about a writer whose name I can't even remember, but I, I seem to recall that there was, that there was somebody who had done that. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's a fiction writer who's done that. You oh, know? sure. I think, and I think, um, you know, I think as long as your scale of, of values and your, your aesthetic sense doesn't get deformed by it. And it is, I think it would be easy. I think, it, you know, if, if one were, if one gets too habituated to thinking like a screenwriter, um, you know, it, it'll, it'll fuck up your fiction. Because, like the internet. Well, yeah. Yeah. But also, also because I think, you know, I, you know, obviously I think, I think that, uh, you know, in screenwriting, you're always needing to solve, you know, story questions and scenes, you know, in terms of what can be, you know, visually shown and directly expressed, right? Yeah. Things have to, it has to be expressed in the words and the pictures. And, you know, I, and, you know, in, in fiction, I think one is always trying to, um, express something by not saying it right. By not stating it too, too bluntly. Right. Or, or right. working at the, at the, you know, at the level of interior in ways that film right. is incapable of. Doing. Right. Right. And that's, and I, you know, and I, I think, I mean, the one thing I will say is, is that I, you know, I, I grew up with a, with a sort of somewhat defensive notion that that was always superior you know that the literature was deeply superior to film because of its um, access to the inter- interior. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I felt I was, I was really weirdly s- snobbish about it. I mean, you know, like I, I always, I always feel that, you know, writers of my, you know, generational cohort would, you know, talk very freely about being influenced by film. You know, I mean, you know, or being influenced by television. And I was, I actually really had my shields up against that kind of influence. You know, I, I was like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I would, I would never allow that stuff, the same, the same stature and the same level of importance or even the same kind of attention. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experienced as a writer and as a human being, I just think, boy, that was stupid. Yeah. Well, dude, you know. I'll take you. I'll, I can yeah. one up you. Yeah, <laughs> do. When yeah. I was in uh, under, when I was an undergraduate, I was, I was a film major, of course, um, and I remember not wanting to watch certain films or read certain things. I had this theory for a while that was like sincere in me, which I can't believe. Where I thought, like, you know what? I don't want to. I don't want to be overly influenced by these outside sources. I want to come up with my own. Right. Vision. And right. I was feeling muddled and like, <laughs> and, but I was like sort of proud of it. Like I'd struck on some sort of gold. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just like, just grandly stupid, but you know, I was 19. Yeah. But I think those, I think that, you know, I mean, as you say, you were 19 and all of us had our grand stupidities when we were, when we were 19. Yeah. 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 Which makes like, you know, to, to, to circle back to, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, like the fact that he was publishing, wait, <laughs> Can you hear my dog? I can hear your dog. He's, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to hear this, uh, you know, people listening, but my dog is just hyperventilating. It's the most fantastic heavy breathing <laughs> sound. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a piece of work. But um, I was saying, like, Freddie Stanellis, to, like, to think that he was publishing Less Than Zero when he was, like, what, 19, 20 years yeah, old? Yeah, it's pretty, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Anybody, I mean, anybody who's able to produce um, competent work right literary work at, right. at, at, at such a young and age and that's certainly better than better than competent work he 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 you know he and he certainly talked about this before he told me that he you know had written a couple drafts of that book in high school and i i remember asking him like you know when you're revising at that how would you even know what to revise I, yeah 
You know, it was a weird, I mean, I don't think I learned how to really revise stuff until I was 30. How do you revise? Um, it's a really, I have a, I mean, I, I think of it as an eccentric process. It's probably a very common one, which is that I draft on a, you know, I write my drafts on a, on a laptop. Okay. Um, so you're not a longhand guy. No. Well, but then I print the draft and I start tinkering with it in longhand and I inevitably wind up rewriting, you know, I'll start. You know, it's always like the first paragraph I'll be in there, you know, kind of changing words and moving things around. And then, you know, inevitably I'm, you know, a page into it when I start, you know, rewriting. And I I do wind up then writing a kind of second draft by hand. Okay. So just to get, just to get into like the nitty gritty specifics of this, when you print out the first draft, Mm -hmm. um, you know, written in word or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to go to, to do the edit by hand. Yeah. What's your line spacing? Or do you just flip? I, I, I double space anyway. You do. But, it's not like yeah. you have like four spaces in between lines to allow yourself. No, I, I mean, I sh- it would probably be wise because I okay. usually, you know, I always end up flipping the page over and doing it. But it's, I, I love that part. I love rewriting by hand and it's completely different. And you know what strikes me as a good idea about that is that if you go into to Noodle and you know what, you can always, you know, you can always create a, a new saved document so that you, you preserve the original draft. But right. When you go in and you, you go you do it by hand, you're not allowed to get uh, in there and start monkeying around with delete and no, you, you do it all by hand. So you get yeah. to actually look at your changes, but also reference the original text on the yeah. same document. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, honestly, I just think there's it's very different. I mean, I think it's neurologically different. It's like a different set of syn- a different set of synapses are firing or, or something. I'm, I'm I've usually found that when I come up against a kind of you know block or a, a problem in the work, I can solve that by handwriting too. Interesting. Yeah, which is weird. See, I um, talk to all these writers, and everybody's got their different little quirks. And every time I hear one of them, I always want to adopt it. Like, I, but I go, I go to and fro. Like, I write, I, you know, I wind up writing the whole second draft out by hand, and then I'll think, oh, I'm just going to type that up. And of course, I start inputting that into my computer, and it winds up, it comes out completely different. It's not what I wrote by hand. Okay, and then so I print that, and I do it. I do the whole thing again, and it gets. It's almost like watching a, a photograph develop. Like, I, there's a way in which the language in the earlier drafts is so watery that I can't really, it just won't fix on the page. Then the narrative and the, the kind of, you know, the, the things that I'm describing don't, they, they feel kind of vaporous. Okay. And I'm, you know, kind of always about kind of screwing the thing into place so that everything becomes more vivid and more, more sharp. How many drafts do you typically do? Is there, is there a number? I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, not less than, I mean, if you're really counting, like copy edit and that kind of thing, not less than a dozen. I mean, you know, usually if, it, but it, if, if we're really talking about, it, it usually takes five or I'm guessing it probably ballparks around five to get it. And and with mm-hmm. dream machine though, you said, which came out like in this, you know, unusually rapid rush, of uh-huh. like 800 pages in yeah. four months. Um, did you go through that handwriting process? In I the did. Same way? I, not, not in exactly the same way. Like there's, there was definitely a lot of, a lot of, I mean, the funny thing is, is that it, you know, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of sharpening and, you know, and, and there was a fair amount of, I mean, I think from that first draft, I wound up cutting about 200 pages and then, but then I wound up adding, you know, another, then 120 pages of something else came back in. I mean, which sounds, you know, I mean, and then when I think about that and all the kind of more meticulous changes, you know, it all, it all sounds like a tremendous amount of work and it was, but when I look back at that first draft, which I still have in a, you know, massive box in my garage now. But, you know, the last time I looked at that, I thought, this is really, 
it's it is the book that that I wrote. You know, it starts in the same place, ends in the same place. Right. You know, and, and you got you got the right the big picture. You know, there's a lot, just a lot of tuning, and that's not always the case. I mean, there have been books where I feel like I you know I rewrite it, the narrative of it changes. Did you feel, did, and did, were you thinking along the lines of this, you know, television, film, was any no, of that in your mind no, at all? No, 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 nothing. No. It, it, it can't, it really can't be. I mean, it just can't be. There's no, uh, I mean, at least I've never found a way to, you know, if it, if it could be something that wasn't a book, I might, I mean, you know, the, the, it's a little bit, I mean, it is like, it is like biological. It's like, why is that bird not a dog? Like, you know, well, you know, because, because it's a bird. Right. And, and you know, you're, it's, it's, it was such a, it's always such a process to just try to make it the most realized piece of fiction that you can make it that I wouldn't, you you're know. like, I'm trying to make a bird. Don't ask me to make a dog. Right. At the same time. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. So did you feel like, when did you get a sense that this was, um, I don't know. Did you did you have a sense when you were writing it like this is it? This is really fucking good. In ways that maybe previous efforts like it, did it, I, I had a sense when I was writing it that I thought this is really I don't want to say good because you know what well, I guess what I found interesting is is that usually or often when I've written things in the past or when you know you 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 get very used to you know I think every writer everybody who's written for a while gets is used to the experience of they'll be writing something and they'll think god this is really fantastic, you know. And then they'll read it back and they'll just be like, Oh my God, what a pile <laughs> story of, of my life. dog shit. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, hopefully also the other experience, which is you'll be writing something and you'll just be like, God, this passage is such total dog shit. And then sometimes you'll, you know, you'll come across it and you'll be like, that's actually, that's not bad. Yeah. You know, it's all right. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I had realized quite, in quite some time before that I, you know, that you sort of realize, well, then what I think about the material isn't really that important. Like right. I, you just, you keep going because, because I'm being misled by my feelings about the material. And the truth is always somewhere, somewhere in, in between. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, what I remember about writing that draft was I thought I didn't really, I didn't have those kind of oscillations in either direction. Like I never thought, Oh my God, this is terrible. And I never like really thought like, huh, smell me now, you know, it's so good. <laughs> like, no, it was um, the dream machine. Now. It yeah. was so, you know, it felt very, and I, I liked that there was a sense of, of kind of, um, you know, coordination and balance in, in writing it where I felt I didn't really have to, I didn't feel like I needed to doubt it while I was writing it very much. And I also didn't feel that I needed to, um, inflate it. And, you know, I think I had a kind of rock bottom sense of like, wow, this is, you know, this is this is good. This feels good to be writing this. I don't um, care what it would. Right. I knew, you know, I felt like this, this book has a certain, you know, it, it felt like something that it had taken me quite a while to be able to say. And, and, um, you know, whether good or bad, you know, I like with like with anything, you know, that, you know, some people are probably going to really like it and, and some people are going to really detest it. Um, and, um, and neither, you know, I, I wasn't really going to get too concerned with either perspective. Well, what about what about writing about Los Angeles, living in Los Angeles with a father who uh, is a longtime agent at one of the major agencies in Los Angeles? You, did you have any concerns about people seeing themselves in the work or none people mistaking, uh, you know, Bo Rosenwald for your father and all that kind of stuff? No, I really didn't. And that was an interesting thing, too. I mean, in, in part, I think, because in order to be able to write anything, you have to be inventing it. I mean, you know, I was sitting in my little office space on, on Beverly Boulevard, you know, looking at the Los Angeles I was describing every day, but also not 
not really looking at it. I mean, I was really kind of pulling it out of my memory and imagination. And it was very clear to me that, you know, the, the characters in it were not, um, were not actual people, you know, that Bo, Bo is not my father and, and Nate, the narrator who, you know, was sort of very conspicuously constructed as a sort of like a, like a fake me, you know, like, like Nathan Zuckerman for Roth or, 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 um, fuckhead in, in Dennis Johnson's Jesus son. Like, you know, I, I, I knew that I was using a kind of autobiographical looking character as a screen. Um, but I also felt very free in, you know, letting him resemble me and not resemble, you know, it was, it you was had, a kind you get of to have fun flex. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, and I think that's an important, I mean, I think that's always a, a, a nice thing for a writer. Right? Writers tend to find those characters, you know, that there's a, there's a you know enormous tradition of you know the the I <laughs> the I who is not I right. the I who is another. Um, well, and it's also you know like I think about uh, the speed with which you drafted the book and I you know the, how good it felt. Um, you know, there's all the work that your subconscious has to do, you know, over the years as right. this thing is accumulating inside of you, and then you have to get to the point emotionally or psychologically where you permit yourself to write it. Um, you know, whatever it is that we have to go through to finally get to the point where we can say what we want to say. Right. There's that. Um, but then there's also, uh, finding the right, like, you know, like the, the, the first person, mm -hmm. um, what's the, what's the name of the, the POV that I'm thinking of first person removed. Uh, what you first person omniscient? No, or no, no, not for I mean, like, that's in my like finding the right, the right narrator with mm -hmm. the right perspective to tell the story. Right. Like, you know, you're not going third person omniscient. You're going, not going through Bo, you know, right. you, there, like there, I think there's something Mark Twain once said, mm -hmm. and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, there's only one way to write a book. Uh huh. You know what I'm saying? There, there's like one right. voice. There's one right. way in. And until you find it, it's going to resist you. Exactly. And then if you force it, you know, in a way that's not, natural to the story, it's going to feel wrong for the reader. Right. And it's not going to succeed as a, as a narrative. And right. so it sounds like, or, you know, that once you, you got there with Nate, right. That was it. Yeah. And I said, I mean, I said first, first person omniscient for a reason, which is because in this particular book, Nate is a first person narrator who is granted the, the, the powers of an omniscient third person narrator. And, you know, it's funny as we're having this conversation, I'm looking over at your shelf and looking at that copy of David Shields reality hunger. Um, and, uh, I know Shields is a guy who just drives people crazy, but I love David. Shields I do too. Yeah. Oh, I do too. I, I find it really interesting. And, and, but, um, he had said, David had said something to me once where he, I was, you know, blundering along on a piece of fiction that was not, not working. Um, and it actually was sort of a, an, an early attempt at American dream machine that wasn't happening. And David said, uh, he said to me, the secret of great work is that you, you, you give the problem that you're having with the work to the work. And I said, huh? And he, he gave me a very specific anecdote about how, when he was writing his first novel, dead languages that he was, it, it kept coming out feeling, you know, the language was very sort of stiff and feeling a little over elaborated. And then he made the, until he made the narrator of the book, a young man with a, who stuttered, who was therefore obsessed with alliterative language. Right. And it was somehow giving that quality to a, to a person. Um, and in that case too, I think a person who resembled David at least a little bit, sure. um, you know, uh, was that book able to take shape. And I, I, you know, that was certainly my experience with this book. And I, you know, I think God knows every, every, every writer will have this over and over and over, which is, you know, the, the, the sort of 
clanking attempts to get a handle on your material. You know, it's, it's, it's pain. It can it's, be painful. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> it's, it's in, infinitely painful. Mm. Uh, and I sometimes think one's tolerance for that pain is, is, you know, is, is what, you know, what, what separates people. And if I, okay. So, is it because cause I've had, I've wrestled with this cause mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, you know, you have to have that tolerance. You have to be willing to go through those shitty drafts and you have to be willing to sit there and engage in the tedium of noodling with the language and getting those sentences right. And like, right. is the pain tolerance a sign of, of like spiritual, psychological and emotional <laughs> toughness or are these people insane? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, again, I think about, um, you know, Philip Roth, who at the very least is exe- who was exemplary for being prolific, uh, you know, and he, he talks, I think in one of his Paris review interviews, uh, I mean, actually, I'm not sure if there's more than one, but he, he talks about, they ask him about his process and he says, well, you know, usually I start writing something and it's, you know, it's just this embarrassing, awful, you know, sort of I unconscious repetition of the last book or, you know, and then, you know, after a couple hundred pages, like I'll get like, you know, after a couple hundred pages, like I'll get somewhere and I'll, and there will be the actual first line. Yeah. No, I, I want to say, yeah. he, I want to say I, I'm paraphrasing the same exact interview mm-hmm. and it was an interview and it was a, and it was an anecdote mm-hmm. that made me feel better. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Cause you're like, here's like the greatest American novelist, quote unquote, who is writing, you know, hundreds of pages of shit, right. Pulling from them, maybe four or five that have anything worth keeping right. and then starting. I mean, there are, you know, I think about, and I, th- I think that almost every writer has that experience. I mean, I guess someone like, I don't know who, you know, Trollope probably didn't have it or, or, uh, George Simenon, you know, who would write, you know, three or four novels right. a year. Right. But I mean, a month, <laughs> right. But there, but, the, but, I, but, you know, in, in that case and, and, and maybe in Trollope, I've only read three, three of the 50 some novels that he left us. But, you know, there's that sense that they're not, they're not needing to reinvent themselves or anything from book to book. They just go on. It's almost as if it's all one book. Right. Um, which is tempting sometimes. Yeah. 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 I mean, so do you, I mean, speaking of which, do you, are you, you're working at something new? I, I am. Yeah. But is it, is it a Los Angeles thing? Do you feel like you're staying in the same mode or some of it has set in Los Angeles? Some of it is not. And I'm actually at an interesting kind of, kind of pivot point with it because I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm going to persevere with that thing or if I'm going to repurpose those pages into something else. It, it feels like I at the Philip Roth fulcrum. Yeah. <laughs> I may just be, I may just be at the Philip Roth, but you know, fulcrum but there. it's, it's nice to hear that. I mean, like you kind of smiling as you say it. Oh yeah. It doesn't bother I mean that, that is actually, and this is the first time this has ever happened to me, which is, um, boy, we're, you know, going, going, going a lot with quoting writers in their interviews, particularly their Paris review interviews. But there's a wonderful thing Don DeLillo says in his Paris review interviews, which by the way, is one of the absolute best of the whole. I'm sure I've read it. Yeah. But he says, they ask him what, you know, what's his favorite part of the writing process. And he says, throwing things away because it means that there's a better way to do what you've been working at, but that the information about how to do it isn't available yet. And for years I read that and I thought, you know, you lying sack of shit. There is no way that is your favorite <laughs> part of the writing process. Right. And when I realized the other day that I thought I was going to, that I think I am going to toss these, you know, 200 pages that I have, it was like, it was a absolutely clean and joyful moment for me. It was like, oh, fantastic. Great. I hope I do. And, uh, you know, I just, I hope I do. It, 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 um, it means you're getting somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It means I'm getting somewhere. 
And, uh, and that's like, I mean, I never felt that way before. It's no. fantastic. It's that's, so liberating. But that's the thing. I mean, yeah. like that means, I mean, I, I think that means you've achieved some creative maturity. I, or at least I've been right. I've been doing this long enough to know. And I do think, you know, that there was a time and not just, there was a time, you know, every, every writer, you know, knows or many writers know, especially when they're young, you know, that, that there's just that sense of, you know, will I ever, will I ever be able to do this without despair? Right. Everybody knows, well, there's a great, you know, you have these great days, right. And then you have these times when you're just like, Oh my God, this is such a, such a catastrophe. Right. How, why, why am I doing this? And how do you stay steady? You know, and yeah. how do you, that's really it. You just show up to work right. and it sounds so easy. You well, know? well, but at least, but, but or it sounds so simple. It becomes possible. I mean, I think they're, they're you know, because when you're, when you're really going through that experience of, it's just too terrible. It's just too painful. Don't do it. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, I, 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 I work every day except when I don't. Sometimes I don't. And it's when I don't, I suspect it's just because the work is because it's one of those moments where doing it would just be too, too, too unpleasant. Well, that's the as thing. As opposed I mean, to just slightly unpleasant. Well, that's the thing. Those, like those, that's one of those little like internal negotiations that you have to make, you know, because on the one hand, you don't want to bullshit yourself and just give yourself an out. Like, ah, right. I'm just going to go, you know, go outside. Right. You know, read magazines all day or whatever. Um but on the other hand, I think that there's a danger in kind of forcing yourself to work when it's just really not there. Exactly. Sometimes your subconscious or whatever needs some time to yeah. rest. Yeah. You know, and let the thing sort of incubate and then you can go back and you have a full head of steam and clear and clearer vision. Yeah, exactly. And that's okay. I mean, you know, I, then, and I've come, I've become very, um, uh, you know, th I mean, those periods are always, they're always awkward. I'm in one right now. I'm like, I'm not quite ready to reread this thing. I'm not quite ready to commit to throwing it out. I'm just sort of comfortably, Sifting. comfortably Sifting. awkward. It sounds yeah. like comfortably, Comfort <laughs> comfortably awkward. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the television, uh, adaptation oh, of yeah, dream machine, sure. because yeah. that's, that's exciting, right? Yeah. Is that going? Well, Is it happening? I we're I'm waiting to find out. Um, I found, you know, the, the actual process of writing the pilot, which I just, you know, at least writing the, you know, the, the, the draft of the pilot that was deliberal, um, has been, uh, what well, was um, a, first of all, it was like writing anything. It was, you know, a co a, I wrote a first draft that I found excruciating and terrible. And, um, and, you know, having written the book turned out to be really no help. Like, it's really strange. Like I felt suddenly like I can't the dial, like it's, there's no dialogue I can lift from the book. I can't really like, you know, the situations are different and there was, you know, I, I really had to, to write it as a, as a freestanding entity, or at least like as if I were adapting someone else's right. work. Um, but you know, it, it, it turned out at least having come to the end of, you know, having written a pilot script that I feel is, is, you know, really does contain, you know, a, a series in it, a whole multi-season you know, there's just the whole thing is just sort of screwed with a certain kind of potential. I, I was going to say, because yeah. like everyone in town has a pilot. Right. When you're writing a pilot, mm -hmm. like what did you, I mean, the, the pilot has to contain the all. Like what does a well, pilot, what I, does a successful pilot episode have by, to achieve? By, by contain the all, what I mean is that it has to contain, I mean, it, I, I'm sort of fascinated by, I guess, questions. I always think of it in terms of a kind of narrative physics, which is, you know, how long can you sustain you know, I feel, and I feel like every situation has bound within it. And this is true for the beginning of books too. It's like, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of, of 
of narrative energy stored in a piece of material. And, you know, it's, it's particularly a problem for television shows that go on for, you know, multiple seasons, which is, you know, what happens when that, when that potential is spent and then you're, which left, happens, it happens all the time. Right. And then you're sort of like, it isn't really anybody's it's, you know, and of course everybody's trying to like keep the thing going, you know, cause it's a cash cow. Right, or... right. Exactly. And, you know, and sometimes it's like, it just can't, it's, you've already, you've already done it. Well, and I, like, okay, here's an interesting question mm-hmm. because maybe like, do you think it's an underlying uh, issue of narrative physics as you put it, where like, there's just only so much energy mm-hmm. that this particular story can contain? Or do you think it might be an issue where, you know, you have a creative team that's making this thing and they only have so much energy because well, it's, a little, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. But I mean, I would just argue that, you know, they really, it really is just like stories are like, you know, like they're like biological entities. It's like every one of us has an end date and, you know, some of them last for longer stretches of time. Some of them last for shorter stretches of time. And, but you can, you can certainly see it when a show overextends itself. Yeah. And you could feel it when a show overextends itself a little, you know, like, but even by like a half season, you right. know, there were, right. there were definitely moments, even in something as great as the Sopranos, where you sort of feel like, oh, you're, you're stretching it out. You can a feel the wheels starting to wobble, you, you know? know? Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it's very rare for, for, for shows to, you know, kind of come in on the money. Yep. But can you, you think know. of one that does? Well, it did for you that you felt like, wow, that's just like, it's, it's fairly, I mean, it's fairly obvious, but you know, I think obviously, I think breaking bad came about as close as it's possible to do. I still haven't finished. I mean, I still have to get way deep into it. I think, I think six feet under did. I think, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, the shield did a wonderful, I think underrated LA show. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, I mean, that was a little long, but you know, again, it's, it's not, um, you know, I mean, it's, it happens, but I think part of what makes the, part of what makes the medium interesting, part of what makes, you know, television interesting in a way, film features, film studio feature films are not so much to me right now is that, you know, there is that margin for error. There's that sense that they, there is always, because the ending isn't worked out in the beginning, you know, there are always those sort of, t- you know, and I think people even forget, you know, they go on and on about the sort of perfection of breaking bad. And there are, there are you know, kind of loose ends and abandoned plot points and things that, you know, places where you can see that they just clearly change direction. Well, it's like a novel. It's more novelistic. Right. Right. There's more, there's more latitude. You're not confined to like this, um, you know, 110 page, uh, form, which, yeah. And by the way, that's also, you know, a big thing for me about novels is I like books where the, the, you know, there's a, where a, a kind of perfection isn't attainable, isn't quite attainable. And that tends to be almost always true of long books. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think it is possible in a, sh- with a short novel, you can really get that precision. You can really get it yeah. and hone it in a way. But I like, you know, but even then I sometimes think, you know, the, the best books don't, because they're dealing with, with, you know, things that are not, that really can't be fully resolved by the person writing them. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you say that because I think like, I think you might be speaking not only as a reader, but also as a writer, because I think as a creative person, mm-hmm. when you encounter art that has that kind of feeling of like completely done perfection, right? it's like a cul-de-sac, right? you know, right. whereas when you have this kind of book with, it's like bursting with all these kind of loose ends and ideas, right. it, it's like grist for, for the mill. For sake too, you look at, you know, you look at, one looks at uh, Melville, one looks at Dickens, one looks at Tolstoy. You know, these are all writers who had difficulty with endings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and, and not just, you know, not because they weren't 
competent practitioners, obviously. You know, I mean, Huck Finn is a, is a, is a perfect example. You know, the absolutely, you know, the, the, the alpha novel of, of American literature in a way. And, you know, the, the, the ending of that book is a disaster. Right. Yeah. Um, I have to reread it, but, you yeah. know, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's legendarily a problem. The ending that he finally, you know, grafted onto it, you know, many years after the fact. And, and I, uh, I think, um, you know, I just, I think that's, a, I think that's a, that's a good quality. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it yeah. means there's a lot happening. And I think that, uh, again, like it just gives you, I mean, as a reader, I think it's a more, it can be a more, uh, nourishing imaginative experience yeah or intellectual experience yeah or you know? or just experience experience you know i mean in the end that's that's what we're looking for from books is is you know is is some some encounter that we can't get any other way not even from tv yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it's been super fun talking with you congratulations on all the success Thanks. Um, i wish you well with the next book uh, in your state of uh, like kind of Zen calm, with, with like this at this pivot point. <laughs> we'll see how long that keeps up. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then uh, also with uh, you know with the television adaptation of uh, of Dream Machine. Thanks. Hopefully yeah. that goes through. Yeah, I, I hope so too. We're we're waiting to uh, waiting to find out. Cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to yeah. come over and talk. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Okay, you guys. There you go. That is Matthew Specter. Go get American Dream Machine. It's out there now from Tin House. You can find Matthew online at matthewspector.com. He's on the Facebook. He's also on Twitter, where his handle is at Matthew Specter. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, if you want a free audiobook download, just go to audibletrial.com/slash/otherpeople, and uh, you get a free audiobook download. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from. Go to audibletrial.com slash other people and get a freebie. Uh, don't forget about the app, the free official other people app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app as if by magic. You don't have to do anything. You can also download episodes to listen to while offline. And best of all, you can access premium content and the show's full archives all via the app. So here's what you do. You get the app. The app is free. Within the app, you sign up for premium. It's 2 bucks a month. That's it. $2 a month. And for that $2, you get access to everything. Every single show will then be available to you anytime you want them, wherever you go. It's a terrific deal. 2 bucks a month. So please go get the app. Once again, the app itself is free. Uh, all right. I feel like the monologue went long today. I talked about, uh, you know, I had the, 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 the extra audio, which always extends things. I hope that was okay. Just trying to keep you entertained. That's all I want to do. Just trying to deliver quality content. Please remember that uh, Nietzsche was nearsighted and that Robert Lowell once punched Gene Stafford in the face and broke her nose. That is it for now. I'm all done. I'm going to tap out. I'm going to walk outside. I'm going to see the things that I always see. Perhaps I'll see some of the people that I always uh, see as well. You never know. Should I record them? I'm not sure. Is that unethical? I certainly hope not. Thanks again to Matthew Spector for talking with me. Go get his book. Don't forget. Thanks to Tin House. And uh, I will be back again soon. I will, you know, I will return to your uh, computer screen or your mobile device with another conversation with another writer, which you can then uh, ingest and process. Boy, do I hate the word process in the context of the creative arts. 
I think that's why I don't like to talk about process because I don't want to call it process. It just seems tedious. People talking about their processes. We need a new word for that. Can somebody come up with a new word for that? (laughs) 